My goodness, it's so amazing what God has done for us. You know, whenever I preach on that, I preach myself happy. So very, very happy. It's almost crazy because after that, it's like, what do you preach? It, but it, there are some things shared with you about the fact that the Spirit of God is in you, quickening you and everything. I just want to break this open for you a little bit more, okay? Go with me quickly. If you can bring up the scripture, please, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Now, you read there that the Spirit of God is in you, right? We know that the Spirit of God is the gift that has been deposited in you. It's a seal, and He's the empowering, He's the comforting, He's the guider, He's the teacher, He's everything. And so it's written that the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, what's the difference between a living being and a life-giving spirit? Well, the difference is a dam and a river. The difference is a dam and a river. How many of you know that a dam can be polluted? How many of you a river cannot? I want you to realize that the power of God doesn't store up in you. The power of God doesn't store up in you. Jesus said to the woman at the well, he said, whoever will ask of me to drink, I will give them water, and they will never thirst again. For from their innermost being will well up rivers of living water until eternity. Right? There's this flow. So as you can see there, Jesus was talking about becoming a life-giving spirit. Whenever Jesus spoke about water, often he was talking about the Holy Spirit. Go to the next verse for me, please. And so you'll see this now. However, the spiritual is not first. Do you see that? However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterwards the spiritual. Okay? John 3, verse 3, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says, Except a man be born of the flesh and of the spirit. Because why? You must come into this world through your mother's womb, and then you must be born again from above. So first you're born a dam, then you're born again a river. Next verse. It says, the first man was of the earth made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Next verse. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. That's you and me. So you can see that Paul understood this. He understood that just as we bore the image of Adam, we would now bear the image of Christ. And just as we were once a dam, easily polluted, we were now a river free from being able to be polluted. Now this is the reason why in the Old Testament there were very many ceremonial laws to try and protect you. Whereas in the New Testament, Jesus completely ignored them. Jesus would hug lepers. But the Old Testament, you come close to a leper, you're defiled. Jesus didn't run away from the woman with the issue of blood who touched him. But in the Old Testament, if she was caught, she would have been stoned to death. Jesus was a life-giving spirit. So he was so full of life that he infected everything with life around him. He would hug people and life would infect them. He couldn't help himself but bring things back to life. He was so bad at funerals. He always wrecked them. Whenever he got there, people would just come back to life. And that's who you are. Where you go, life goes. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Don't 
Hide your lights. Let your light shine before all men so that they may see your good works and they may give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's very, very important. Now, the only thing that stops people from really doing this is a mindset. A mindset that is really deeply rooted in the way that a man thinks. And you're going to come across this mindset very often. It's a mindset that is, in a sense, very dangerous because it can isolate someone and stop them from enjoying the fullness that God has to offer them because they think of themselves in a particular way. And unfortunately, Africa at large has a problem in this area. It is the mindset or the spirit of an orphan. Now, I want you to think back to the movie Oliver Twist. How many of you remember Oliver Twist? Oliver Twist is hungry. What does he do? He goes and he asks for more. If they don't give him more, he runs away from authority, and then he steals what he wants. What does the orphan spirit do? It feels abandoned. It feels lack. And it feels that everyone has what it needs. And so it attacks. Since the fall of Adam in the garden, mankind has suffered from this problem. The problem has affected every single thing in his life, from his thoughts to his actions and everything in between. He has been guided by a deep sense of abandonment. This is what shame and guilt produced. It left us alienated from the one that gave us life. And in time, we became so persuaded that we were nothing but a mistake that we forgot our true value. We lived our lives always longing and needing to the point where our mind was reprogrammed to think in terms of scarcity, and this moved us towards a sense of self-preservation. And Genesis 3, 8 to 13 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So why were they hiding? Why were they hiding? Can you guys read that? They hid themselves. Why? Because they felt something. What is it that made them hide? Guilt and shame. Yes, they were naked, but nakedness needs to guilt and shame. If you walked in here naked in your dream, would you feel guilty and ashamed? Yes, you would, wouldn't you? That's why everyone hates that dream. Don't worry, we would all run to grab something to wrap around you and protect you. Okay, that's how it would work. That and the cameras. We don't want anyone looking on the cameras. Amen? <laughs> so all you watching, you'll close your eyes if that ever had happened, right? The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you gave me was with me, and she gave me fruit of that tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, It was a serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. And the snake, well, he had no legs to stand on. So this was illustrated by Adam in the garden, soon after the fall, when he decided to blame his creator for the gift that he had given him. God had made Eve for Adam. After painstakingly going through many versions, God finally made Eve. And finally, someone, Adam said, I could call 
bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In the moment that he was guilty, he attacked the very thing he loved and blamed Eve and then blamed God for his own mistake. You've never done that before. It, so you can see here, he failed to take responsibility for what had happened because he was afraid of the consequences of his actions. How many of you have ever been afraid of the consequences of your actions? You know you did something wrong, but you know the penalty is going to be painful, and you just want to stay away from it. Have you ever felt like that? I know many of your children have felt like that. And so many of us have done the same thing. We've shifted the blame. This, in turn, was the root of the problem. Fear of punishment ruled him, and he found himself feeling abandoned and alone. The truth was very different from what he was feeling. Since God never abandoned his creation, but rather was lovingly working towards its redemption. God never said, I'm going to abandon you. No, he never did that, did he? However, as mankind partook in sin, this feeling of separation became a living reality. Every person knows in their heart that they deserve punishment for the sins that they've done. Since God is a just and holy God, we all believe rightfully, that the only thing waiting for us in our death is pain and suffering for our rebellion against God. And this is what Romans 5.12 is saying. That sin came into the world through one man and then death through sin. So we've got to remember that, how it came into the world. So this produced in mankind an orphan spirit. And it left him in a state of need and want. Mankind looked in every direction for something to replace God with. So that he would no longer feel this way. But nothing lasted long. Even the best distractions would eventually run their course and leave a wake of destruction in its path. Leaving the person in a worse state than before. With even more fear and more guilt and more shame. Have you ever noticed you can't sin more to get away from sin? Have you noticed that? For example, what do people try and fill this void with? Money. Success. Woman, drugs, career, anything but God. Okay, so we can clearly see that these things eventually blow up in their face and then they end up in a worse state than what they were before. So the power sin had over mankind's soul was soul-destroying. It was always promised satisfaction, but it always left us empty and alone. It would be important to note that this was the enemy's plan all along. The devil knew that in order to rule mankind, he would need to find a way to guilt man into it. He had to find a way to get man guilty enough so that he could manipulate man. He would need to find a way for us to submit to him, and our insecurities became his playground. Have you got insecurities? No one is secure enough to admit if they have insecurities. And listen, where you are insecure, the devil is playing, man. And you know it. All of our insecurities originate from this one idea, that we are alone in this world. Just as that old human adage goes, each one for himself. Or better yet, it's a doggy dog world out there. Or every man is an island. Children without a father feel this way. And they become very rebellious if they don't realize that they are not alone. And that there are people around them that love them. Many of us are taught to be self-reliant and not to rely on other people because they will disappoint us. 
Even this way of thinking is based on fear. And fear is the very thing that drives the orphan spirit. Fear is what has kept us in bondage to slavery because ultimately our sin was stacked against us. In Genesis 6, 7 to 8, it says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Everyone say, thank you, Noah. Yeah, because otherwise you wouldn't be here and we wouldn't know you. This is not unreasonable. After all, our sinfulness was so great that God had to take decisive action against us because every thought of our heart was wicked. He decided to rid the world of humanity and flood the whole planet. Unfortunately, God found Noah and was able to save mankind and all the animals from complete destruction through the ark. And soon after the flood, mankind returned to his former ways, constructing a tower called Babel that would save them from God's future wrath. I'm running through this with you so you understand the orphan spirit. And you understand where it comes from. Because it doesn't come from your culture. It comes from way back. This is deep, guys. It is ingrained. Because if you do not deal with the orphan spirit in your life, you will still be begging God for what He's already given you. And if you don't understand what you have, then you will still act like an orphan who's living in lack when actually you're in the lap of abundance. You have to change your mindset. You have to shift from an orphan to a son. It's very, very important. I'm not just reading this for the sake of reading this. I'm, I wrote this with intent in my heart because this thing needs to break. The orphan spirit has no right in the life of a believer. You're a son of the living God. Genesis 1, 11 verse 1 says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. You notice that different languages have different mindsets. And so something I paid a lot of attention to. Have you noticed how many of our arguments are not because we don't speak, say, English. It's because our, the way we think is different. So the way we articulate English sometimes can be different in what we're thinking. And sometimes someone can tell you something, and because you think differently in English than they think in English, you think you're hearing what they're saying, but they're not saying what you're hearing. Yeah. Have you ever had that happen? I had that happen, especially when it comes to people in America and Australia. I was told by an American, please email me the information. Sorry, please mail me the information. If I say to you, mail me the information, what is your, thought, your first thought? Post it. Do you think it's going to get there? If you're a new person like me and you know what actually happens in this world, you're never going to post it. If someone says, mail me, you're going to email it. If it's a document, you're going to scan it in, and you're going to email it. What he meant was post-its. Because their postage system works. But mine doesn't. And I know that it won't get there, even if I post it. So I immediately default to mail. And months go by, and he gets upset because he's not getting what he's asking for. Meanwhile, I am sending him emails. But he's not looking in the right inbox. It was completely innocent on both sides. It was completely undeliberate. But it ended up creating a problem. Then we needed to deal with it. But the reality was that it was a miscommunication because we didn't understand what we were saying, even though we thought we knew what we were saying. Now, in, the, in this case, 
the people that were building the Tower of Babel, they had the same language and the same words and the same way of thinking. They were united in their ways of speaking. So is it unreasonable for you to believe that we were all one people before? We were all one people. Because these people were all one people, were they not? So we were all one people. So to think that we're not one people is actually a lie because we were all one people if you go back far enough. Well, I'm your brother whether you like it or not. <laughs> okay, so verse 2. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Sinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for motor. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So what did God tell them to do? To be dispersed over the face of the earth. So what were they doing? They were rebelling. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Your potential is scary. Your potential is scary. If God says, this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord, the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because they were bab bab babbling. Because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So you can see here, the only way to save mankind from his absolute rebellion against God was to cause division amongst men by creating language barriers. Alright, so even though God had promised that he would never flood the world again, as he did with Noah... These people were still afraid because they knew their own sinfulness. Yet they were so united in their cause that God had to send confusion so that they would not continue in this destructive way. So God changed their languages. This forced them into tribes that separated them and kept them divided so that they would not seal their fate by attempting to challenge God. The orphan spirit drives people to be suspicious of everyone they don't understand or anyone that is different in the way they look at the world. Have you noticed that? The orphan must cling to his clan or his tribe for identity and struggles to find his strength as an individual who is able to think for himself, even if it means going against the status quo. Did you notice Jesus had a lot of people around him, but he was very much independent? Did you notice the Pharisees were trying to get him on their side? The Sadducees were trying to get him on his side? That was sad, isn't it? You see? The orphan finds himself unable to trust and is always living in fear. This is what ultimately guided their thinking when building the tower. They needed to protect themselves from God because they did not trust His promise to never again destroy the world the way that He did. Their mistrust of God's promise was unfounded and ultimately based on their perception that God was working against them. And so it was up to them to cling to one another against God's command to fill the earth. But once they no longer shared one voice and one vision, 
And because of confusion caused by their languages being altered by God, they split further into divisions. And only now, clinging to those who share their language, as time progressed, each person became convinced that they should only look out for themselves. Each person became convinced that they should only look out for themselves. In so doing, they conceded to hopelessness and ignorance, and each one went their own way. Romans 3.11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. That's Romans 3.11 to 18. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So after the Tower of Babel, the people of earth moved out and began to fill the earth. But they all went their own way, and many turning to idols and false gods. And during this time, there was a man named Abraham who did not believe that these things that they had made, sorry, that these things that had been made by man, could be man's gods. Didn't make sense to him. So in Genesis 12, verse 1, God speaks to Abraham because Abraham is looking for the one true God. And now the Lord said to Abraham, or it's Abram at this stage, he becomes Abraham later. Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, how many of you know, hearing that promise from someone you can't see, taste, touch, or feel, still takes faith? And you can only imagine Abraham's discussion with his wife. Hey, I found the one true God. Really? Which one? What does he look like? Well, he's invisible. Well done, Abraham. You didn't even bother to make one. You were that lazy. You just invented an invisible one. How original. Everyone else takes the time to actually make one. You just figure, I'll just make an invisible one. You're lazy. That you are. No, no, no. I really spoke to him. Okay, what did he tell you? He said, we've got to leave. He says, yeah, that's because you don't like my dad. Is it my mother? Is that why? No, God said we've got to go. Okay, all right, Abraham, where are we going? Well, he said, go this way. And then... He'll kind of show us where we're going. Oh, now you don't even know where you're going. You're a man without any direction, Abraham. Do you understand how much faith this took? There's a reason the guy's name is in the book, okay? It took faith to believe God when everyone else had an idol for everything. And why did he have to leave? I mean, Jesus tells you, go into the world. God tell Abraham, get out of the world. Why? Because God was trying to create a prototype with Abraham, so you would know what it looked like to be a nation under God. Because Abraham was one who sojourned for the promises. He was seeking a, a city, a land whose founder was God. And you have come into that city. Hebrews 12, you have not come to Mount Sinai where there is horror. You have come to Mount Zion where there is cheer and rejoicing. So the Lord spoke to him and gave him a promise, and Abraham believed God, and that was the beginning of God's plan to deliver man from an orphan spirit. 
Abraham's choice to believe God cost him everything. But it also gave him more than he could ever have hoped for. Abraham enjoyed a covenant relationship with God. And God called Abraham his friend. James 2, 21 to 24. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And what James is trying to say is that if your faith has no action, then it is pointless. So Abraham knew God as his friend. This is the first step towards deliverance from an orphan mentality. You have to recognize God is friendly. You can't keep him at a distance as your enemy. This is the first step towards deliverance from an orphan mentality because Abraham believed God had good intentions towards him and the whole world. He was able to enter into a covenant relationship with God and trust him. Orphans don't trust. They are constantly concerned and full of anxiety, waiting for a moment. Then they will just be abandoned and rejected again. Abraham was able to move beyond this orphan mentality, which is often categorized as victimhood or survivorhood, by choosing to trust God's promises, even though God instructed him to sacrifice his own son, Abraham knew God's faithfulness and did not doubt that God would, if need be, resurrect his son from the dead in order to keep his promise as he said he would. Unfortunately, this orphan mentality is so ingrained in the mind of man that it often leads him to question God's good intentions towards him when circumstances arrive that seem to be destructive in nature. And very few have been able to break free of this orphanhood because they have not seen God as their friend. They've not read Hebrews 11 verse 5 to 6. For by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe, number one, that he exists. And number two, that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Not a punisher. Not malice. Not malevolent towards you, but a rewarder. Before we can begin to trust God, we must believe He exists and that He is a rewarder. When we believe this, then and only then will we be free from an orphan mentality. It is our own fear about what God will do with a guilty sinner that keeps us from knowing Him. This is why God keeps His promise and sends His Son into the world. Jesus Christ was the one and only Son of God sent from the Father to reveal the Father to us. To be the way back to the Father without fear of punishment, but assurance of salvation and reconciliation. So the Father is reintroduced through Jesus. The friend is reintroduced through Abraham. God first has to be your friend before you can even consider him to be your father. John 14 2 to 8, it says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And then Jesus answers after that. He says, Philip, how long have I been with you and you still don't know me? It's as if at that moment, Jesus fades from the scene and the Father is the only one speaking. Because if you really knew the Father and then you met Jesus, you would think that Jesus was the Father. And if you knew Jesus and you met the Father, you'd think that you met Jesus because they are so one that you couldn't tell them apart. You wouldn't know where the Father began and where Jesus ended and where Jesus ended and the Father began. And so it should be with you. Because even as He, the Father, was in the Son, so the Son is in us and the Father is in the Son and we are in the Father. John 20, 16 to 18, it says, Jesus said to her, Mary... She turned and said to him in an Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father, your father, to my God, your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, that he had said these things to her. Jesus, after his resurrection, called us brothers. Jesus called God, God, and Father, Father, as we call Him God and Father. John 15, 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that you have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Sorry, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So Jesus told His own disciples that they were no longer servants, but His friends. And then after his death and resurrection, he told Mary that he still needed to go to the Father. And he told her that his Father was their Father and that his God was their God. He did this because he had made a way open to the Father for all who would believe. Now that we have been reconciled to the Father, we are not fatherless. We are not orphans. We are sons. And even more so, we are sons that have been given the honor to serve in the kingdom of God. And we have been given the opportunity to enforce the victory through the cross on the earth as kings and priests. And this is what Peter was alluding to in 1 Peter 2, 9-10 when he said, But you are a chosen race. Who? You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. What does it mean to be a royal priesthood? means to be a king and a priest, a holy nation. The cool thing about holiness is that it lacks for nothing and that it is always abundant. It is self-sufficient and in need of nothing because it is self-containing. It is whole and complete. You are a holy nation. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, once you understand that we were once orphans, but now we have found our Father and His kingdom and have been adopted to rule in His service, the plan of God becomes clear and our purpose simple. We begin to understand that our help comes from the Lord, that our Father is good and that He has gone to the absolute ends to secure our eternal redemption. We are His and He loves us and He is jealous that we should receive all that He has given us and that we should walk as sons of God on the earth and that we should demonstrate His goodness to the whole of creation so that it might receive what it has been waiting for. What has creation been waiting for? Who can tell me? The manifestation of the sons of God. We are kings who rule over the works of the enemy and who serve mankind through selfless sacrifice, hoping with eager anticipation that they too will be snatched from their doom through faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to know this, my brothers and sisters. You are a son of God. And when a son speaks, heaven is in agreement and hell has received its marching orders. The oppressed go free. Thank you very much.